0: Welcome to This Week in Private Markets, a podcast by TAP. We give investors, allocators, advisors, and others a weekly digest that keeps you in the know about the news in private markets. Please see the show notes for relevant disclaimers. This is the week of November 20th, and this is what we at TAP saw in private markets. We'll jump into the big deals to start. This week, Bain Capital closed $7 billion for its Asia Buyout Fund, Menlo Ventures raised $1.4 billion for AI investing, and Carlyle sold its McDonald's China stake for $1.8 billion, which yielded a 6.7 times return. With that, let's jump into the main stories this week. First off, six more trade groups have joined the battle against the SEC's big recent private fund rules. As a reminder, those rules require private fund managers to obtain fairness opinions in, in secondary deals. Um, They require fund managers to distribute quarterly expense reports, to conduct yearly compliance reviews, stuff like that. And basically, these groups join uh, another set of about five or six trade groups that claim that the commission overstepped its congressional authority with these rules. And so they're saying things like these rules disrupt a currently well-functioning system. They're saying it interferes with private contract law. It's a troubling over-assertion of administrative power, all this type of stuff. Where do you guys stand on it? Do you think they have a leg to stand on, I should ask?
1: I, I mean, I think it's important to remember... Uh, what this lawsuit is about really i mean you know the the new private funds rules are not anything you know they're they're definitely kind of more form over substance right i mean i think substantively private funds have been engaging or, or complying with these rules you know before these rules that had even been been put into place right so i mean some of the things that that the rules will ask private funds to do you know when they're when they're fully rolled out is you know obtain fairness opinions on gp led transactions Right. They'll have to distribute expense reports, conduct compliance reviews. I mean, it, it's really kind of table stake stuff, to be honest, that I think like any well any well run manager, um, you know, uh, things that a, a well run manager should be doing already. Um, I think this is a lot more about putting a stake in, the, you know, putting a stake in the sand already. Um, to prevent any further, you know, reach by the federal, you know, federal authorities here. So, you know, I think, you know, we just need to sort of have that perspective and understand that the rules in and of themselves, I think, are not particularly inflammatory. um, And this is really about preventing any further encroachment um, obviously, I think going to the Fifth Circuit is strategic, you know, this is the the circuit that covers, you know, Louisiana and, and Texas and maybe one other state, um, you know, Texas, you know, literally having been its own country at one point in time um, in American history, you know, is quite hostile, I think, to, to federal overreach compared to other states. So um, that's really what this is about. I think it's about setting precedent, you know, for future potential moves by, you know, the federal agencies
2: to, to restrict activity by private fund managers yeah setting precedent that they'll fight when you know provoked when someone comes into their territory i cuz i agree i mean if you look at a lot of these um things that the that the the plaintiffs are putting together here they're they're saying that you know they overreached their bounds that they are solving problems that don't exist that the rule is generally just bad for the industry and i just i don't really see it they're saying there wasn't enough comment time that the that the things they did um, put in will we'll hamper the industry in one way or another. I feel like the, the SEC was pretty thoughtful in how they put this together. I think most of the things are going to end up being pretty good for the industry. I think pretty much everything, most everything in there is pretty standard stuff, like you were saying, Adam, that uh, the large managers are already doing. And I guess the side letter transparency disclosure one is the, really the one that's not really sort of standard and the big change. But I agree. I don't think that's what it's about, right? You can't point to any one thing that's potentially onerous, or even the whole thing that is odious to them. I think it's just the idea of the SEC regulating them. If they don't put up a fight, then of course they're going to take more ground, and they're going to start regulating them more and more. So I think they they feel they need to put up a fight And I think that's why it's significant that you know more trade groups are are joining just to show like that in the future there's going to be solidarity of all these trade groups that represent. You know, P investors and LPs against the the, the regulator from creating more regulation. And I I do want to note that I think that there's a balance, absolutely. And I think the lack of regulation is what makes the private markets special and the preferred location for folks to raise capital these days. Um, and so I think that we would we really want to maintain uh, a not an onerous level of regulation in private markets, but uh, at the same time, when something becomes common practice from all the big managers and best practice then the then it, it makes sense to sort of standardize it and uh and that's something that I think the SEC was doing correctly here and um I think that the the industry itself is doing something correct by saying that they are will stop future encroachments in um in this sort of uh, indirect way that they're doing it here
0: okay let's take this theme of regulation and carry it forward to the Biggest story of the weekend, which was OpenAI. Um, in case you've been living under a rock, the board spontaneously fired CEO Sam Altman um, without really providing much reason. Then over the over the previous weekend, it all sort of turned into a giant amount of turmoil. Um, every Silicon Valley journalist had their busiest weekend ever trying to get a scoop on it, and it all seems like uh, just a bit of a cluster. And it all happens at the same time as OpenAI. Uh, exploring share sales at about $86 billion, which is, of course, a huge valuation. So it sort of begs the question, is this too big of a valuation? Is this too big of an enterprise for private markets? And is there perhaps some benefit to them going public and, you know, introducing a bit more transparency, perhaps being well, true to their name, OpenAI? Yeah, I mean,
2: uh, they they can't go public. This eighty billion dollar valuation a year ago, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was in much much lower. It was you know ten billion dollars, something like this, right? So they they're still in very nascent company, despite the fact that they have this huge headline number in their market cap. the The technology is very nascent. Their their development within their market is very nascent, and so the idea of taking something like this public would uh would be pretty wild. Now you did see that in two thousand that. A lot of folks did take pretty nascent technologies public. I think the big advantage of that, and what we're what I think is the, the point of what you're saying is that in private markets, there's all these shenanigans that they that they've done. And and the shenanigans are are mostly from the fact that they were a nonprofit at one point and now they've sort of figured out how to become a for-profit. But all that exists in private markets. It's not something that would that would co- coexist well in public markets, right? In public markets, you'll be pressured to set up you know, a board of directors that makes sense, there's the 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 exchanges themselves and a bunch of gatekeepers will make sure that you're, you have certain policies and compliance and governance in place that makes the company much better run. And I do think that that's something really, really important to have um, with the company that's important. I think in this case, you know, it's just too early of a stage to have uh, this particular company have figured that out at this point. Like, I don't think the expectation was they they, they should have figured that out. Um, uh, in terms of should have figured out go- this by going public. I do think they should have figured out governance generally at OpenAI uh, prior to this. Yeah, I mean, this raises a question, and this is what you're really
1: asking, Thomas, I think is, you know, is, is the implied, you know, should there be an implied liquidity discount or sort of information discount or opacity discount, um, you know, to these companies that really just kind of prevents them from ever reaching
2: these types of these levels of, of private valuation. Uh, I mean, we. Yeah, I think there's. I've heard. I've heard a different argument. I've heard the reverse argument here, by the way, which is that uh, private investors get more information than public investors on the investments that they're making. Right? They can dig yeah. in and see every little thing about the investment versus. In, in in public markets, you obviously have a wider array of investors, but they have a more limited set of information that they can get their hands on. So, you know, you could say, a lot of people would say, no, there should be a premium, an information premium when you're investing in these these rounds and you're a close investor, you know? Yeah, I mean,
1: well, it's obviously up to the companies what they want to disclose and what they don't want to disclose in these private right. rounds.
2: I, I think the, know- problem is, the problem is, of course, is that the, the hotter the company is, which is really where all the action is, the less they're going to disclose in one of these private rounds, right? They're just going to say, look, we have, uh, you know, all of our numbers and charts are going, hockey sticking up to the right. So give us investment or you're going to be left out in the cold.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're just now seeing, you know, news articles being written about, you know, a year or 12 months of sort of turmoil or bickering or however you want to describe it between Sam Altman and the board. You know, I think, Say this news came out later, right, and these secondary purchases had taken place, I think as a secondary investor here, I I find it highly doubtful that you would have been cued into this kind of 12 months of of bickering, right, or uh, among the senior leadership and the board. So, um, again, you know, I I think I'm not necessarily saying this would have been made. Made um, available had the company been public. Either it's just you obviously you know what when you're public you obviously have the ability to sort of move in and out of an investment. Um, you know there's a lot of you know much, much clearer price discovery in, in, with respect to what your investment is worth. Um, I think now the the big question is you know w- what really should OpenAI be worth? Um, there are potentially is key man risk. There's not even key man risk. There's there's sort of like whole you know, whole human capital risk here. I mean, 700 people threatened to resign, right? And and uh, basically causing the organization to disintegrate or, you know, embrace the warm, uh, you know, arms of Microsoft. Um, so I, I, I think the biggest issue is that these existential things can pop up. Um, and, you know, there's, there's very little recourse sort of after that if you are coming in here as a private investor.
2: Well so they were raising an $86 billion valuation and I saw a poll conducted on Twitter. So uh, nothing official or financial or anything like this. That was you know more, same or less. And I'll tell you it was pretty evenly split. It was, you know, 44% said less and you know 30% said same, 30% said um said more, uh, that it should be worth more after this um uh this debacle than than before. So I think just like the actual situation itself, where it was very hard to figure out what was going on and uh, what entities sit where in the structure, it's hard to figure out what these things are worth um, for anyone.
0: They certainly got a lot of additional free publicity this weekend, can't deny that. All right, let's move on to another celebrity in the investment space, Kim Kardashian. She started Sky Partners, the private equity firm earlier this year. And they have just made their first deal. Uh, In this case, they purchased a minority stake in the company Truff, which is a condiments business that sells truffle-flavored products such as hot sauce, pasta sauce, mayonnaise, oil, salt, all that good stuff. And um, worth noting is that Truff is not just a condiment, but in fact, a premium flavor enhancement brand. I thought that was quite a fantastic way to describe (laughs) it. Adam is our foodie. What do you make of this? Truffle seems well, very on brand.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we we kind of know um, Kim Kardashian's strengths. I think, you know, Kim Kardashian, we've talked about this in the past, has an ability to, you know, just with her endorsement or her face or her presence around a consumer brand has the ability to, you know, generate tens of millions, if not more, of enterprise value, you know, kind of from day one. Um, so, you know, th- this is exactly the kind of investment I think you would expect um, her and her private equity fund to take on. And, you know, it, it's no surprise here to me that this is, you know, one of the first investments. Um, so look, I, I I think this is completely on brand for, for what they're looking to do. It seems like these are quite, um, you know, premium sauces, I think they're, you know, <laughs> 20 or over $20 a bottle um, for these truffle, these truffle infused sauces that, that this company
0: makes their flavor uh, enhancements. So-
1: sorry, apologies, flavor enhancements. Um, and they've got some, you know, high profile collaborations with Taco Bell, with Hidden Valley in the books. Um, so yeah, look, I, I I bet Kim Kardashian's investment is, is a real boost to, to value here um, and, and and brand
2: recognition. And that in and of itself is, you know, probably a lot, um, you know, to increase the enterprise value. Definitely a down the fairway investment for them, I think. They haven't, had any creep in their mandate at all right this is they're exactly on point i think if you were to say a private equity firm and uh, a talent agency had a baby you know wh- what would it be it'd be this condiment you know high high, uh, high end condiment uh company here that we got right you know warren buffett invests in heinz ketchup and if uh, she wants to be the the her own celebrity version of warren buffett i think this is a a, a perfect type of investment to to make here so yeah, I think that this is this is exactly spot on and if they can just do this 15 times they're going to have a re- really stellar track record. Yeah, I think the, the key point here is,
1: you know, I'm I'm not going to buy more Heinz cuz you know Buffett invested in it. Um but if I walk across a shelf in a supermarket and I see truffle you know, I probably would have walked by it, not really thought twice about it. But now that I've seen it in the news, Kim Kardashian's invested in it. You know, honestly, I may just buy a bottle. Yeah, I know.
2: I was looking at it, Damn. too. and uh, It looks like a pretty good Christmas gift, to be honest with you. It's kind of <laughs> like the right price point for someone you don't know that well. And it's, uh, But, you know, who's going to turn down a really interesting, you know, uh, ketchup infused with truffle, hot sauce, whatever, you know?
0: This is great. They have stocking stuff for tips from TAP.
2: A whole package, yeah, and and I think uh, you you're right that Warren Buffett doesn't make that difference. I think, but I think the point I was making was that um, that a condiment company is the typical type of company that a private equity invests in, right? So that the the half of the story is that it's not just oh, some random uh, really you know company that performs really well when an influencer backs it. It's also the type of company that has really stable returns because it's, you know, sells something that everyone has on their, in their, in their kitchens and in every restaurant and that kind of thing. So I think it's a, it's kind of a good balance, a good mix of the the PE with the, uh, with the celebrity.
0: Excellent. We move on. The FTC is on a crusade against PE backed roll-ups or monopolies as they call them, as well as, it's it's shining a spotlight on the impact of uh, those strategies on consumer prices. So there's a couple of things going on. The agency is looking into a pending merger of the grocery store chains Kroger and Albertsons. It's also having a look, as we as we talked about a few months ago, at a roll-up strategy uh, in in one of the largest anesthesiology chains in the country here in the U.S. and the impact of that on increasing prices for patients. And they're also now taking a look at uh, Rourke Capital's purchase of Subway, which is uh, massive at $10 billion. And they're considering uh, blocking this or attempting to block this because the PE from Rourke already owns other fast food franchises such as Jimmy John's, Arby's, uh, and a bunch of others. So there's, you know, some monopolistic concerns there from the FTC. And again, they're taking a look at this, particularly with a a, a lens of does this impact consumer pricing in a negative way?
2: Yeah, so this Subway merger that I think we talked about a while ago, and we were talking about whether or not there was too much concentration when this was first announced, and we and we covered that 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 Subway purchase. And now it's interesting to see this come up. I mean, wh- one thing I always find funny is that uh, you know it's all about how you define your market, right? So when the FTC uh, comes to you and, and says that you're a monopoly, what everyone basically argues over is what market are you in? you know, is uh, Google in the search market or is it in the, you know, web browser market, right? So uh, they, they kind of have these arguments. And in this case, uh, you know, there's a famous question that that's always that, that goes around, what is a sandwich? And in this case, they're, they're arguing whether or not they're in the the sandwich market. And they're arguing about things about, they're going to end up being arguing about things about whether or not uh, burritos are in the same market as them? Salads are in the. It's, are they in the the same market as a salad? You know, as a burrito, is a burrito. And so, I find it funny that it's a. It's kind of derivative of the argument. A uh, is a is a burrito a sandwich? I, I'm not sure. Um, that I'm sure we could devote an entire podcast episode to, but, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting to see them trying to to define those types of things in, in this particular case, um, itself. Yeah,
1: there's been many an Internet meme made about the sandwich to burrito spectrum and <laughs> where the food item falls falls on that spectrum. Um, yeah, I mean, this, you know, my my take on this is this is, you know, the Biden obviously by Biden facing re-election next year. Um, this is, I think, about him and, and and the federal agencies that, you know, he, he appointed. Um about them building a track record. And I think it's a track record that says, hey, look, uh, here, I know, basically, you know, middle class, you know, lower class Americans, I mean, all Americans ha- have been negatively impacted by inflation. Um, There's been a lot of inflation, obviously, in basic consumer goods, there's been uh, a lot of inflation. And, and generally speaking, uh, obviously, a lot of um, news around uh, medical expenses and and how, um, you know, really devastating those expenses can be on on families and particularly you know without good insurance coverage and um you know these are you know the the sort of the medical roll-up um you know, suits, you know, certainly make sense here when looking at it from that kind of, you know, policy lens. And and you might not immediately think of, you know, a sandwich chain as as being sort of very, very policy motivated on on a broad level. But, you know, it is, you know, I bet you, you know, a lot of, you know, constituents, you know, do go and they go to Jimmy John's and Arby's and Subway. And, you know, these are regular sources of, uh, uh of you know lunch or food for for many families and you know i think if you extend this into into food or, or other basic consumer goods you know it makes total sense from a policy perspective so you know again i th- i think um you know w- while unrelated health care and and sandwiches um sort of on, on, from the get-go i think you know this makes a lot of sense from the type of policy um you know the biden administration has been pursuing and, and obviously that i think the type of um you know political moves Judicial moves, you know, administrative moves that the 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 administration wants to make heading into you know re-election and and being able to stand by you know what it's done and and be able to sort of basically show voters,
2: hey, you know, this is kind of what we've been doing to keep costs down for you. And I wonder, uh, does it matter if they win? Because I mean, basically, they've had a pretty Lena Khan's had a pretty poor showing so far in some of these 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 merger challenges they've had. I think there's the. There's an Activision um, uh, acquisition by by Microsoft that that got torn down. There's a something I think a VR or something other with meta um, that that also is is not working well. Um, and so I, I wonder if it matters if they actually get some wins on this or if really you know making the effort on behalf of the American voter will you know serve their political campaign uh, objectives pretty much as well.
0: Okay, we move on to our last topic for today which is Brazil. Now, Brazil has had some tumultuous times over the last few decades, including things like currency depreciation, which spooked many investors, uh, offshore investors in particular. Um, And that, of course, in recent years has then led to basically a shortage of capital, which has then in turn increased the potential returns for those limited numbers of investors who have stayed in the country. Now, some investors are dipping their toes back into the water. Uh, notably Aries, for example, which has invested $100 million in a local PE partner firm called Vinci Partners. So they're back in Brazil, exploring investment opportunities and doing so uh, with the help of a local partner that knows kind of the local rules, regulations, customs, all that good stuff. Where do you guys stand on the investment potential here in light of, you know, the headwinds that the environment has had over the last years?
1: yeah I mean, you know uh, my, my view here, I guess mixes a little bit you know macro policy with you know private equity um strategy. um I mean, you know people people might forget, but I mean you know ten years ago, twelve years ago, in Brazil was you know economy growing seven, eight percent, um you know, certainly rivaling the growth rates of of China and India you know in those years. And then, obviously, was rocked by sort of massive, you know, maybe the largest uh, political corruption scandal, you know, in in history, um, which you know obviously caused deep, deep recession. Um, You know, many millions that had exited poverty, you know, had had re-entered poverty, and you know, I think generally speaking, the the country um, was viewed as as being both politically and economically unstable. I think you know Brazil has recovered, at least in, in the global perspective, some of that political. Um, and economic stability, you know, post-Bolsonaro, now with, you know, Lula coming back and and sort of the the, the political corruption scandal having run its course in and, and the courts and, and everything. Um, but, um, you know, look, what I think that kind of boils down to is in how that impacts private equity strategy, right, is this is, this is pretty typical. I mean, you know, for better or for worse, you look at markets outside the United States. Um, you know, Canada is a great example. You know, th- those companies do tend to trade at you know, call it one, two, three times, um, you know, less of, of an EBITDA multiple, for example, than their counterparts in the United States do. You know, my guess is in Brazil, the, the multiple discount is is much, much bigger. Um, so I think these are private equity managers taking a bet that, you know, they they could invest at you know, five times, um, you know, EBITDA in, in a similarly situated company. That they'd probably have to invest in at ten times EBITDA, right, in the United States. Um, so th- there is a big multiples arbitrage. Um, you know, they can take their dollars, invest at five x, um, and you know, do some consolidation. Um, You know, maybe some cost reductions, uh, maybe even some, you know, some some mergers even or, or, you know, uh, acquisition of of contracts in the United States or in other places. Right. And and I think they can very quickly sort of gain the benefit of that multiple expansion. Um, So, you know, we we see the strategy among in roll ups. We see the strategy kind of in cross border U.S. and Canadian deals. Um, and I think the benefits of that multiple expansion will probably only be amplified, you know, in a market like Brazil, which keep in mind is, you know, 210, 220 million people, right? It's it's much, much larger um, than
2: any kind of regional market that, that we have, you know, in this hemisphere. So what multiple expansion are you talking about there? You're saying that if uh, that there's multiple expansion from the work that they do or just from Brazil, you know, kind of having less of a, of a discount versus... The, you know, no, the- I mean, look, I, I
1: think private equity managers can can come in. They can buy a really, really solid cash flowing business that you know I think is is probably pretty similar from a margin perspective and a growth perspective to a business you can find in the United States you can buy that, you know, I'm I'm making up numbers here, but let's just say at five times or, you know, four times EBITDA, that business might cost eight or nine times EBITDA, right, in the United States. So, I mean, you can obviously buy it at a much more attractive entry point. And then you can come into those businesses and, you know, pursue a similar roll-up strategy, right, acquire other local companies, you can create, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of collaborations with with businesses cross-border, right, you can, you know, build things like, or benefit from things like economy of scale, economies of scale, excuse me. um, And you can grow that, that multiple, um, you know, I think relatively, um, you know, using these kind of like proven private equity strategies. Right. And, um, and then a few years, you can flip a lot of these businesses for, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, nine times EBITDA. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, regardless of what the the macro kind of political or economic landscape in in brazil is right i think these these private equity managers think that they can grow these businesses and they can expand the multiples at a much faster rate right than the local economy necessarily will expand
2: Uh, Um, a lot of that is a really is due to a really attractive entry multiple right yeah i i i i tend to agree that in general it seems like you know there's the, a lot of the macro factors have scared off other investors. And so there's, there's less competition for these types of strategies. So you can come in exactly. and, and do these strategies in a more unfettered way. I mean, in the U S you know, there's dollars and dollars of capital chasing every company out there, um, every dollar that, that, that exists in a company out there. And so, um, so yeah, and, but I, I am overall like not super sanguine on, um, them getting multiple expansion, let's say, from a change in the macro uh, environment over there, right? I, I think it's right, continue, not at all. like these things are multi-decade, and sometimes even century-long trends of uh, relative, uh, you know, relative advantage between between countries when it comes to their capital markets. And, um, you know, a lot of these types of trades are kind of like widowmaker types of trades there. You, where you could stay in a lot of these emerging markets and, and other places for, for a long while and think, well, they're going to have to come to parity with, say, the U.S. But it's you got to kind of look at the the, the longer term factors that have uh, kept them in the state they are, and then operate within those markets. And I think, like you're saying, one of the one of the things that that that, that fact itself scares off a lot of people from operating there. Along with Brazil has some really crazy unique idiosync, uh, idiosyncrasies about how they do their legal system and how business works over there uh, from a technical perspective that. Scares off a lot of people from operating there, and if you can't operate there um, at, at decent size, you're probably in a in a market that's less competitive than you are in the US.
1: Yeah, and like, and, and partially some of this reallocation too. You know, South America is also being driven by um, you know investments leaving East Asia, right? Leaving leaving China um, primarily. So, I mean, like, if you if you are a, an emerging markets investor, um, you know, Brazil probably does present some of the best opportunities today. Yeah. Yeah probably do have excess capital that you're frankly not devoting to china or um you economies that um you know are quite reliant
0: on the chinese economy okay good stuff let's conclude here if you're in the u.s i hope you're having a great thanksgiving if you're not in the u.s hope you're having a great week nonetheless we'll be back next week with another great episode we'll leave it here and see you soon bye-bye